Some of you are wondering, looking at the back of your outline, if you got the Sunday school notes or a, a rogue chemistry lecture, uh, some some sort there. But no, no, indeed, that is that is the notes for this morning. Uh, it will be visual, and um, I, this I feel like this message, in some senses, is for me. But I hope that you will benefit from it also. Um, every every Easter season, every Christmas season. I have this great fear, this great personal fear that I will waste the holiday, that it will be another Christmas, it will be another Easter, it will be one more time when we do what we do here, we do what we do at home, we get together with family, we do all that, and we miss the fact that this week, historically this week, is the most important week in time and history. And I don't think that's overstating the case. Uh, and so every every season, in this case Easter, I ask myself, what do I need to do in my own heart to make sure that this week is not wasted and that that I am led to worship and that I can lead my family to worship and corporately that we are led as brothers and sisters to worship. Um, I'm going through the book of Job with uh, Alan right now in our little Bible time. And came across this verse, and, and you don't you don't need to read it, you don't or you don't need to turn there. I will read it to you. Um, but it started it, okay? It started what's coming, and uh, I hope that this will be this will be helpful. This is um, you know the, the three friends have come. Job's in the ash heap. He's suffering greatly. He's just poured out in chapter three that he wishes he died at birth rather than suffer. And Eliphaz asks him this question as he comes to comfort him. And, you know, the first thing he says is, why are you being so impatient, man? What's the deal? Um, But he asks this very good question in Job chapter 4, verse 17. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? That's a really good question, isn't it? Can people stand before God? Can, can people be in the right before the God of the universe? He says it again in Job chapter 9, verse uh, 2. Uh, I'm sorry, not Job 9, 2. I'll, I'll read it to you again. In Job 25, verse 4, he says this. How then can a man be just with God? And that's, a, that's probably the most important question in the whole book. How can a man be just? How can a man be right before God? We are sinners. He's a perfect, holy, uh, infinitely good God. How on earth can we stand before him? How can we be in the right before him? And that one question that's asked in the book of Job really sets up the whole drama of the Bible. The whole Bible, in a sense, is an exposition an, or an explanation of how people can be right with God. And it starts in Genesis chapter 3, if you'll turn back there, please. The Bible's answer to the question, how can a man be just before God? How can a man be in the right before God? It's the point of Passion Week. It's the point of the whole Bible. But the Bible's answer to that question is, ready? Atonement. 
atonement. How can a man be just before God? How can mankind be right before him? The Bible's answer is there's only one way, and that is atonement. Or, as it says on your outline, kafar. Kafar, the, the Hebrew word for um, to atone, to make atonement. Uh, you, know the, you know the noun, uh, if you know anything about the Jewish calendar. The noun is Kippur, as in what? Where have you heard that before? Yom, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Okay? The Bible's answer to how, how can mankind be right before God, the only answer it gives, the only way, is atonement. And I would suggest to you that Passion Week is about atonement. It's about answering that question. It's about solving the, 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 the human dilemma of the universe. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that God made people in His image according to His likeness. In chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God made people to, to fellowship with Him, to be in relationship with Him, to be image bearers that as we would worship Him and follow Him and obey Him and serve Him, we would, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we would reflect His glory. We, we would, in a sense, take His character and through relationship, we would reflect that character back to Him. We would be holy because He is holy. We would be good because He is good. We would be righteous because He is righteous. We would be kind because He is kind. And there's this, there's, it, it, the way it was supposed to be is there's this eternal relationship between God and humanity of relationship, of fellowship, of worship, where we reflect who He is and thus further display His glory in all the universe. The, the idea was that humanity would populate the earth and every single person would be an image bearer, reflecting, as it were, His glory. If, if if you can think about, um, well, if we had a light source, right, and we had one mirror, and we could aim that light source at the mirror, and it would reflect that light source somewhere, right? But have you ever been in downtown Fort Worth about 5, 6 o'clock when the sun is going down, and you've got all those buildings with all those glass panels on these multiple-story buildings, and as the sun goes down, it lines up perfectly with those buildings, so now you don't have one reflector, you have dozens of reflectors, hundreds of reflectors, and you look, and it's, just, it's overwhelming, it's blinding light. That's what humanity was supposed to be. Image bearers all over the world that would take the glory of God and radiate it back to Him so it would be this overwhelming, almost blinding testimony to His glory. That's what was supposed to happen. But people very quickly, in paradise, in a, in a perfect environment, turned away from God. And they said... Um, we're not sure we can trust you. We're not sure we want to spend our life worshiping you, and, and we won't get into all of that. But, but essentially, men and women decided that there was, there was something better than walking with God in that way. And they turned away from Him, and everything changed at that point. Everything in history changed. The world has not been the same until that point. Well, what happened when sin came into the world? Well, we know from Romans chapter 5 that when sin came into the world, what, what else came into the world? Death came into the world, right? Now watch this. Look at the end of chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, God pronounces a curse on humanity. What's the last thing in the verse say? What does it say? Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So he drove the man out. 
at the east of the Garden of Eden, and he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. You say that was, that was mainly because God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life in their sinful state and thus live eternally in their sinful state. Yes, that's true. But there's another thing that that illustrated. In driving them out of the garden, God was giving them a, a, a geographical, a physical way of seeing the fact that their sin now made a separation between them and their God. They could no longer fellowship with Him at the same level. They, they could not have that same harmony. The, the, the image of God where they were supposed to reflect Him now was a broken mirror. It was a, it was a shattered image. And He drove them away. And yet, it's in this very same chapter that we get the first hint of what the Bible calls atonement. Kafar, to atone. Kippur, to the atonement itself. Look back at Genesis chapter 3 and look at what he does. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. If you're not careful, you read right over that. You think, well, they tried to do the fig leaf thing. That didn't work so well, so God says, I got a better way. Here's some clothes. But what is, think with me now, what is the theological significance of, of that event. What's that? Something had to die. Right? The animal, whatever it was that they killed, that God killed to make the covering, to make the garments, had to die. The blood was shed. And as far as we know, that's the first time anything in the Bible dies. It's the first time anything in the Bible bleeds. That's good. What else does it signify? What's that? His mercy, right? He didn't destroy them. He, he started to do something about their sin. The, the nakedness that they were so ashamed of. Physical nakedness, yes. But remember, nakedness in the Old Testament signifies guilt and shame. When it says at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and not ashamed, that's saying they're sinless, they're, they're righteous, they have nothing to feel ashamed or guilty about. And then the moment they eat from the fruit they're not supposed to eat, they realize they're naked. That, that's a Hebrew way of saying, now there's guilt, now there's shame. Right? And God was merciful to not just destroy them right there, absolutely. Tell me about this poor animal. Did that animal do anything wrong? Did he sin? he violate God's command? So why did he die? He was an innocent substitute to cover the sinfulness and shame and guilt of people. And it's the first hint at atonement. That's absolutely it. Let me give you a definition of atonement. Atonement refers to the multifaceted work that God does to restore our relationship to Himself by offering a substitute. Atonement 
refers to the multifaceted work that God does to restore our relationship to himself by offering a substitute. Now, um, again, without, without overstating the case, I will say this. You and I cannot understand the majority of what the Bible is about without understanding atonement. Let let me give you some theological concepts that do not make sense at all if you don't understand atonement, okay? You will not understand our relationship with God that we were made to be in relationship with. You can't understand that if you don't understand what the atonement's about. You don't understand harmony with God, fellowship with God, We don't understand brokenness, that our sin makes a separation between us and God, as the Scripture says. We can't understand substitution. Uh, We are talking about, you know, the the, the gospel is about substitution. This week, Passion Week, the crucifixion is about substitution. What is that all about? Substitution doesn't make any sense unless you put it in the formula of atonement. The penalty for sin doesn't make sense. God's justice doesn't make any sense. Justification doesn't make any sense. Reconciliation doesn't make any sense. Propitiation doesn't make sense. The shedding of blood. We're going to to come up and have communion here. We're going to talk about the, this is, the the cup is, is symbolic of the blood of the new covenant. What is that all about? You don't get that. That doesn't make any sense unless you know atonement. Or God's holiness in light of our sinfulness. This idea that we need a mediator between God and men. Well, that doesn't make any sense unless we understand atonement. The fact that a sacrifice has to be made, pictured in Genesis 3, and that that first animal dying to cover their nakedness and their shame. That doesn't make any... Why? why? If you read the Old Testament, have you read it? Lots of animals die. Every day, multiple times. Why? See, you don't get that unless you understand atonement. Or this idea that, that, that Christ came not to, ser- not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for men. What's a ransom? Jesus has to pay somebody for... See, you don't understand that unless you understand atonement. Redemption doesn't make sense. Adoption doesn't make sense. Guilt doesn't make sense. Forgiveness doesn't make sense. Pardoning of sin, the restoration of fellowship. None of those things make any sense in the scheme of history if you don't understand atonement. Because all of these, and I'll show my my hand a little bit to you at, at this point, all of these things are pieces in the equation that is the atonement. But atonement is the point. So we must understand what atonement is. Atonement is the multifaceted work that God does to restore our relationship to relationship to himself by offering a substitute okay and we see it first hinted at in genesis 3 let me show you the next time atonement shows up turn to exodus chapter 32 if you just start looking up the word atonement in scripture it shows up a couple of places and the word actually hasn't been used yet the word atonement has not been used until gen until exodus and you know the first what you know the first place where it shows up in Exodus chapter 29 is the first time the word 
atonement actually is used. And you know where it's used? We won't read it, but you know where it's used? When they're, they're talking about the consecration of the priests. Remember? God's initiating the, the tabernacle and worship and the sacrifices and Aaron and his family, the Levites, are, they're going to be the priests to, to come and sort of minister on behalf of the people. And, and there's this whole big, long ritual where the priest has to wear this. And he's got to take a bath three times. and He's got to go to, do this and then he has to do that. And he can't eat this and he has to eat that. and All this stuff. And at the end of all of that ritual, it says the, the priest must do this to make atonement for himself. So what does that mean? It, it, the, the idea of atonement in Exodus and Leviticus is it's, it's a work. Atonement is a work that has to happen for God and people to have any sort of relationship with each other. If the priests are going to come and minister on behalf of the people, that priest has to have atonement made for him so that the priest and God can have some sort of relationship. And if you've uh, been doing Terry's Bible reading plan... Uh, I think it was last month, uh, where you're going through Leviticus, right? Atonement, 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 atonement. It's 51 times in that book alone. It's, it's, uh, that book is the most saturated with atonement terms. So it's about the consecration of the priests. It's about purifying the altar, Exodus 29:37. It's about purifying the altar of incense on the Day of Atonement in Exodus 30. But Exodus chapter 32 is the first time that we see atonement used in a personal way. In a personal way. Now, without looking at your Bible, what's Exodus 32 about? What's it about? Very important chapter in the Old Testament. What's it about? The golden calf, that's right. Thank you for acknowledging that you cheated, Brian. I appreciate that. It's about the golden calf. Moses is up on the on the mountain of uh, Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. Right? He he take long. He's taking longer than the Israelites think he should. So they get together and say, "Well, he must have died. Let's we got a great idea. Let's make a god. In fact, let's make a god and call him Yahweh." <laughs> Whoa! Really? And they go to Aaron, the the appointed high priest, and he says, "Okay." Like what? So that you know the story. They bring the gold, they melt it down, they, they make this calf, they bow down, they worship it. They say, this is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. Not just saying, this is our God now. They're saying, this is the guy that delivered us. And they commit one of the most overt, perverse acts of idolatry in the whole Bible. And you know the story. Look at Exodus chapter 32, verse 30. This is after Moses comes down. He breaks the uh, tablets. He kind of assesses the situation. Verse 30. And it came about on the next day that Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps, watch this, I can make atonement for your sin. So this isn't about an altar being okay to use in worship. This isn't about the priests, you know, having the right clothes on and doing the right thing to be able to. This is about personal sin now. 
This is about blatant, overt idolatry. God's people, just just a few days after they've seen God, they've heard God, they've received the Ten Commandments. This is about something has to happen. Some work has to happen in order to fix this broken relationship. And if you read on in Exodus and Leviticus, we won't look at the all 51 instances in Leviticus. You can look those up on your own time. 17 times in the book of Numbers, the word atonement or its variant is used. All that is about how can we, as a sinful people, have some sort of relationship with a holy God, especially in the wake of our overt sinfulness, our in-your-face disobedience. That's what atonement's about. And in the Old Testament, here's kind of where we land. Okay, it, it occurs once in Second Samuel, once in First Chronicles, once in Nehemiah, five times in Ezekiel. But that's talking about the millennial kingdom, the future millennial kingdom. What does atonement mean in the Old Testament? Okay. What, is it, what does atonement mean in the Old Testament? We've looked at a couple illustrations. Here's my definition for what it means in the Old Testament. Atonement in the Old Testament provided temporary, limited relationship with God through a temporary, limited substitute. Okay, Atonement, if you read the Old Testament, here's the deal. It says, if you do these things, you can continue to have some sort of relationship with God through some sort of a substitute. And, and what, what were the substitutes, plural, what were the substitutes in the Old Testament? What were they? They were animals. They were innocent substitutes. Uh, we won't take the time to do this. Maybe I'll do it next Sunday. But the, the highlight of the Old Testament calendar was the day we called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement where the priest led the people in this very, very particular extended ritual whereby the sins of the people would be atoned for for the next year. And they were transferred to a goat that was killed, an innocent goat that provided a substitute. You remember the highlight of that ceremony is the high priest would take his hands on the horns of the goat and likely lay his head on the head of the goat and he would confess all the sins of the people for the year. And that was symbolic of the sin, so to speak, being transferred from the people to the substitute. And then what happened to the substitute? He was slaughtered on the altar. Um, and you say, well, what about the other goat? You remember there's two goats. One receives, uh, you know, the, the is actually sacrificed. The other is where we get the term scapegoat. He's led out into the wilderness signifying the sins being removed. They take him out outside the city several miles. They turn them around, push them off a cliff, signifying the sins being taken away from the people. 
Do you know the last time the word atonement is used in the Bible? Anybody know what it is? Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. This is the last time in the Old Testament that the word atonement is used. And it's very interesting. Look at Daniel chapter 9 with me. Let me set up the context while you're turning there. Uh, This is Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks. This is is Daniel's vision. You know, the historical part of Daniel is basically over, and we've transitioned to the prophetic part of the book, and Daniel is receiving visions about the future, okay? And he he hears about the regathering of the people. uh, um, You can read about that. And in uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, the vision shifts, the prophetic vision shifts to talk about the 70 weeks of years. And, and, and this is the point, we don't, I don't have time to do this, but th- this is the timetable between basically the time of Daniel and when the Messiah is going to show up. And it's prophetically laid out in a timetable. Look at verse 24. At that critical moment, watch how this works. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now watch this. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. Here it is. To make atonement for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy place. So he says, Daniel, at the end of that that time period, guess what's going to happen? Sin is going to be made an end to, right? The transgression will be finished. Everlasting righteousness will be set up and atonement for iniquity will be made. We say, well, what's that all about? Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks and it will be built again in the plaza and the moat, even in times of distress. So who comes to make atonement? Jesus does. The Messiah does. Okay? So, so the last thing, the last mention of the word atonement in the entire canon of Scripture points to the Messiah. Now, I told you, that's the last time it's used in the Old Testament. Okay? When is the first time it's used in the New Testament? I'll save you some time. It's not. That shock you? This is a big deal in the Old Testament. This, this is a huge theme. I just told you that you can't understand all this other theological stuff without understanding atonement. Daniel mentions it in Daniel chapter 9. We never, ever, ever, ever see the word atonement used in the rest of, of the Bible. Huh? I mean, okay, when I discovered that, I was just like, what? Do you do that too? Do you say, that's kind of weird. That's kind of strange. And, and, and the way God wired me, I'm like, i got to figure that out. That's not unintentional. Here's what happens. When we get to the New Testament, atonement hits a prism. 
It's like white light coming to a prism. And then it hits the prism, and what happens? It refracts into all its colors, right? And now it's like, whoa, rainbow, right? That's exactly what atonement does in the Bible. It's like white light. It, it, it's, it's, it's single wavelength-ish. It, it's, it's this single thing coming toward us. And after Daniel 9, it hits the New Testament and it refracts. And now we see beautiful pieces of the atonement that allow us to see the more multifaceted way that God is going to accomplish this work. I told you, right? Atonement is the multifaceted work that God does to restore uh, himself to us, right? Through a substitute. Well, it hits the New Testament and it refracts and now we start to see some of the pieces. And there are three pieces that we see. Are you with me? Is this making sense? Okay. Um, and I'm sorry, I didn't. I, when I have messages like this, I don't know what to give you. So just, I don't know, write something. Um, there is, okay, I, I picture it like, okay, here, here comes atonement. It hits New Testament. Boom, it, 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 it refracts out into these three main arenas. These, I think I wrote that down actually. Not mentioned in the New Testament, right? With the arrival of the actual substitute, the work of atonement branches out into three distinct arenas which lead to one final work, okay? which is why you have three spheres leading to the one. Okay, In your notes, you got it? Okay, So it refracts, you've got three arenas, and these three arenas are what I'm going to call, I think I wrote it down in your notes, the, the preparatory work. Okay? The, the, this is not the final work of atonement. This is not the, the base issue. This is not the main thing. But these arenas are the preparatory work, the, the work that has to be done, if, so to speak, preliminarily to the final work that will accomplish atonement. Does that make sense? Okay. And we see... <laughs> we see these all over Scripture... But I'd invite you first to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. We see all three of these arenas in what is probably the most theologically significant chapter describing the atonement in the whole New Testament, Romans chapter 3. The first arena that we see it in is what we might call the arena of guilt. The second area is the arena of wrath. The third arena is the arena of bondage. And it's not surprising that when you and I read our New Testaments, we read that humanity basically has three problems. We're we're alienated from God, okay? But that alienation brings about three main problems, Problem number one, we have personal guilt, liability, and culpability to the God of the universe because we have violated his law. We are guilty before him. Okay? And, and we feel, in a subject, subjective sense, we feel, we experience personal guilt because of that. Okay? Person, the feeling of guilt. We experience that because we have indeed, in an objective way, violated the laws of the God who made us. 
The second problem that we have is the issue of wrath. Because the Bible says, if we do what is wrong, we are liable to God's punishment. We are liable to his wrath. When Adam and Eve said, no, thank you, God, we're going to go our own way, that, that was no small issue. That was an incident of cosmic treason. Do you understand that? That, that, was, that was like a, a, a 138th degree felony, right? That's just off the chart criminal. Now, why did God make us? He's holy so that what? We could be holy. He's good so that we would be, right? We're, that's, that's the relationship. And if a holy God looks down at sinful humanity, there's no relationship they can have. Not only could they not have a relationship, but that, that holy God looking at something that is an abomination to him, which is exactly what our sin is, that abomination has to be punished. That's what wrath is all about. Wrath is God's righteous punishment of sinners. And when we chose to sin, that brought about bondage. We're slaves to sin. We can't help but sinning. We, we can't stop sinning without Christ. Look at Romans chapter 3. Verse 19, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Do you know that? God did not give us his law so that we could earn our way to God. God gave us his law to further condemn us of our sin and show us the hopelessness, the hopelessness of trying to be right apart from him. The law is not a means of our salvation. No, the law is a means to show us our sin and how accountable we are to God. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law just makes us realize we're greater sinners than we even thought. Verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." If you understand that, you will understand the three preparatory works of atonement. Now, sometimes I, you know, I got to make things real simple to understand them. So, so sometimes I picture, I picture things like this. This is the sinner. This is the cup of God's wrath. There it is, the wrath cup. And one day, the Bible says, that wrath will be poured out. Romans chapter 2 says that 
the wrath of God is being stored up because of the stubbornness of our hearts. Verse 5 of Romans 2, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, with every sinful thought, with every sinful word, with every sinful inclination, with every sinful action, a drop of wrath, of punishment that is due for that sin goes into the cup until, you guys understand, we all have cups over us. And Romans 2.5 says one day God will pour that cup out on us. It's the day of wrath. Guilt has to do with the sinner sitting before the judge of the universe. See, there's God, the judge of the universe, the judge in the courtroom. Here's the sinner, and he's guilty. And he's sitting waiting for that judge to make a ruling, to make a finding. And the picture of bondage is such that we have this chain that leads to this big ball called sin, and no amount of money or position or talent or religious service or effort or work can allow us to get away from that thing. We carry it everywhere. What is Passion Week about? Passion Week is about addressing those three problems. Look back at the text. It says in verse 25, God sent Christ as a gift by His grace through redemption, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, what is a propitiation? What is it? You say a little bit louder. It satisfies God's wrath. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies by absorbing God's wrath. Think of it like this. Propitiation absorbs the wrath like a sponge so it doesn't fall on you and me. Okay, That was what Christ did. He was, and here's preparatory work number one, propitiation. It's a sacrifice that absorbs and forever satisfies the wrath of God so that one day when the day of wrath comes, our cup gets poured and guess what? There's nothing in it because it's already been poured out on Christ. Does that make sense? That's what he says here. God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a sacrifice that absorbs and thus satisfies the wrath of God. Look back at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What does justified mean? What's that? Declared not guilty. So you're saying God is going to declare a guilty sinner not guilty? Wait a minute. What about justice? What about righteousness? What about this God who says, I cannot cohabitate with sin. I can't because I'm holy. You're telling me that holy God is just going to let the sinner, the guilty sinner off? Yeah, that's called a breach of justice. That's called unrighteous. Unless, unless the guilt is removed. Unless the sin is paid for. Because what this week is about 
is a substitute. Where the sin that led to the guilt of the sinner, that sin gets transferred to the substitute, like the high priest grabbing the horns, praying over the goat. And at the same time, this isn't about just sin removed. You don't get into heaven unless you're righteous, unless you're holy as he is holy. You can't have a relationship unless you are holy as he is holy. Now, how on earth is humanity going to get the holiness of God? Answer, God has to give it to him. His own righteousness, his own holiness. That's why the reformers called it an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. It was a righteousness not our own. It was a righteousness you couldn't get from a priest. You couldn't get from an animal. You couldn't get from good works. You couldn't get from trying to uh, keep the law. It, it, It had to be a gift. It had to be God's very own righteousness. And that makes sense. You will be holy as I am holy. In order for that relationship to work, only His holiness could satisfy it. So at the same time that there is a transfer of the sin of sinful people to Christ, there was a transfer of righteousness to the account of the sinner. It is double substitution. There is a withdrawal and a deposit. Right? The withdrawal is Jesus says, I'm withdrawing all your sin and putting it in my account. There is a deposit. Jesus says, I'm taking my righteousness and depositing it to your account so that now... Sin is really removed, and thus the guilt is really removed, and thus the God who is righteous and who is holy and who never makes a bad pronouncement can actually say to the sinner, not guilty. Because it's a real transaction. It's a real substitution. And that's exactly what he says. The God of the universe says in the courtroom of heaven, not guilty. What do we call it, that great legal declaration when God pronounces the sinner not guilty but righteous because of Jesus? What's that called? Say it. Justification. Justification. There it is. Okay? Now, now what are these? These are preparatory works. Remember, atonement fragments when it hits the New Testament. And it fragments into the areas of wrath, guilt, and now we're going to see bondage. These are preparatory works. These are things that Christ accomplished on the cross that lead to the main work of atonement. Okay? What about bondage? Look back at the text. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption. What is redemption? The buying back of something that has been sold in slavery by offering, you ready? A ransom. A payment. One of the definitions of the Old Testament word for atonement is ransom. It's used a couple of times like that. Because what happens is a payment is made. There is a payment, a a ransom. And that ransom is paid in order to break the sinner 
out of the bondage of slavery. And as Romans 6 says, we won't turn there, but you could flip over to Romans 6 and read, we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to what? To righteousness. And then later on in the chapter, he says we are slaves of God himself. This is what Wesley was talking about in the hymn when he says he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. That's what, he, that's what Wesley was so wound up about in that song. He's like, I'm free. I don't have to carry this, this big ball and chain of sin everywhere I go. It's broken. Now I'm a slave to righteousness. And in Christ, I don't have to sin anymore. But this is called redemption. Redemption. Redemption is the buying back of sinners out of the slave market of sin through the offering of a ransom payment. Propitiation is a sacrifice that absorbs and satisfies the wrath of God so it doesn't fall on me. Justification is that great legal declaration of God where he pronounces the sinner not guilty but righteous because of the finished work of Christ as his substitute. Now, I want you to see something. All three of those things require substitution. Okay? All three of those things... Remember I told you, atonement is all about substitution. Remember I told you that? All three of these preparatory works require a substitute. Let's start with guilt. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to what? To be sin. What's that? Substitution. See, he's going to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's substitution in the guilt realm, right? What about the wrath realm? 1 John 2, 2 says he himself is our propitiation. He himself, Jesus, by context, is our propitiation. He is the sacrifice. He is the one who lays, as it were, between the wrath of God and us and says, I will take it. I will absorb it. What about bondage? Matthew twenty twenty-eight. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, what? He's the ransom. His life is the ransom. His life is the propitiatory sacrifice. His life is the guilt offer. He becomes sin. Do you see substitution in all three of those? Do you see it? He's a substitute in our redemption. He's a substitute in justification. He's a substitute in our propitiation. And all of those lead to the final sphere. Because remember, this is preparatory work. All this can happen, and the main reason for the atonement is not realized yet. Okay, So let's look at that final sphere. What is the final sphere? What, what is the real point of atonement? I want someone to guess. Okay, I'll turn around in a minute so I can see your hand. What, what, is, what is that main work? What, what is it? Okay, it, I took you back to Genesis for a reason. Where does all this start? Where does it start? Hunter. It's 
It's reconciliation. In fact, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the words that get translated into the Old Testament that meant atonement in the Old Testament, you know what the word is? I'll show you. Anybody have a King James Bible? King James or New King James? Will you read Romans chapter 5, verse 11? And why don't you, the rest of you turn to Romans 5, 11. Read, when you get there, Bill, read it nice and loud for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 11. That's a King James Bible? Okay. I need King James. I need old school here. I need 1611 Elizabethan. Okay. Anybody have a King James Bible? Okay. Rats. Okay. Um, I thought for sure there'd be, there, there'd be uh, some old saint here. Yes. What's that? Romans 5.11. Someone's looking it up on their... I knew an iPod or an iPhone would come out at one point. Go ahead, David. Okay, all right. It's the only place in the whole King James translation where the word atonement is used in the New Testament. Now, someone read it in a modern version. I guess Bill already did that. But someone read it again in something other than the King James. Anybody? We're almost out of time, so quickly. Why the change between the King James that translates it atonement and the newer versions that translate it as reconciliation? Answer, because scholars realized in understanding the language better that what the New Testament writers were really trying to get at was what was known as atonement in the Old Testament. It was, it was monolithic. It, it was white light. And that's all the colors you could see. Hits the New Testament. It, it diversifies into this rainbow of colors. And the main beam that comes out of that, all these other works, these three works, the preparatory works, but the main idea behind the word is reconciliation, just like Hunter said. It's God and sinners reconciled. That's the point of the atonement. And that makes sense because that's what life is supposed to be about, right? It's supposed to be Adam and Eve and God walking together, fellowshipping, worshipping, enjoying each other. And that's what sin broke. See, we've got this wall. We've got this separation. We've got, we could call it alienation. It's, it's, this, it's the veil. It's... It's the vast distance between a holy God and sinful people. And yet Romans, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, talking about the gospel, talking about the work of God in Christ. You guys know these verses, don't you? Let me read them to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who, listen, reconciled to himself, reconciled us to himself through Christ. 
He makes atonement bringing about reconciliation would be the full theological sense of everything. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. You want the gospel in one verse? Here it is. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's the gospel. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He does those preparatory works of justification, propitiation, redemption, all so that the wall can be broken. And God and sinners can be reconciled. There can be, as Hunter rightly said, reconciliation. Now, the thing I want you to see is the main work of atonement is not animals dying. It's not, and you may have heard the word atonement means to cover, right? You probably heard that somewhere. You know, that's not what the word means. The word atonement does not mean a covering for sin. There, were, there was a season in biblical scholarship when we thought that's what the word meant. Later scholarship discovered, no, that's not really the idea. Atonement means God and sinners are reconciled. It's a work, a multifaceted work that God does to restore relationship between God and sinners through the offering of a substitute. The animals, the Old Testament sacrifices, all the rituals and cleansing, all of that is, is setting the table for the true substitute to arrive so that all those concepts of propitiation and redemption, so all those are understood. So this week, as we remember Jesus hanging on the cross, remember that all of those works were so that you and I could be reconciled to God. Okay? The closest word in the New Testament for atonement is reconciliation. That's what it is. Do you see how you can't understand how all the pieces fit together? until you can zoom out and look at the whole puzzle that reads, Atonement! Right? You see it? And this week, we will remember the great gift of God in sending His Son as the substitute, with a capital S, initiating a multifaceted work so that God and sinners can be reconciled, so that we could be restored to that, that realm of fellowship that we were made to enjoy so that we can reflect His glory again in Christ and through Christ. So let's remember that this week. Okay? Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank You for um, Your great gift of Your Son. Father, it's amazing to think what our sin deserved and what You gave us instead and... and that it is no small work that you did. All the pieces had to be in order so that we could be reconciled to you. Father, it's amazing that you were in Christ reconciling us to yourself um, so that we can take that message of reconciliation and, and tell it to the world. Father, help this not to be just another Easter, another Passion Week. Another week that we do stuff with our family, we come here for the Good Friday service, we 
sing those songs we love to sing on Easter Sunday. Father, would you lead our hearts to greater worship, to specific meditation, to think about all the ways and means that you employed to bring about this work of atonement, this work of reconciliation, so that you could once again be our God and so that we could once again be your people. Father, thank you for that wonderful work. And might our hearts be led uh, this week uh, to worship you with great passion and great thankfulness because of this gift that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray.